Hey guys, it's Midweek Book Read, and we're going to be finishing up with the Rudyard Kipling book, uh, The Phantom Rickshaw, and other stories. And we're going to be moving on to a book called True Ghost Stories. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. How's everybody doing? I think I heard you all say well. Well, thank you, and welcome you for coming. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you do have a paranormal issue, we can help you. It might take us a while because California is such a huge state, but we definitely can help you out with that. And in the case that it does take us a couple of days to get out to you, we do have psychic con staff that will phone you and talk to you about what may or may not be going on. And if it does turn out to be, you know, if they do think it's paranormal, they can settle the energy down until we get out there. But we definitely will be out there within one, one or two days of your request. Anyway, uh, welcome. Today I'm going to be doing something different on a Wednesday. I'm going to be doing the book read. Um, uh, we're almost done with this Kipling book, and I'm really excited about it. Uh, but, you know, and uh, it's just one of those days uh, our guest got sick, so I don't have a show for tonight. So uh, here we are, and, uh, you know, hoping to be live and all that but you know it happens i have to go out and actually do work for my regular job as a journalist so i won't be available either so here i am okay anyway welcome 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 and we're going to be like i said i'm going to be reading from the kipling book for about an hour and i think we're going to end it right away i think we're going to be ending it before the hour so i do have another book lined up to true ghost stories and please remember that these books are out of copyright at this point so it's okay to read them online all right all right, getting back to the team, uh, we do have some events coming up um, Sunday at 4 p.m. Pacific. Nancy Mass will be doing readings for Valentine's Day, and that means that uh, you can ask ask her anything you want about your love, your, your relationships, best friends, significant others, lovers, whatever else, uh, husbands, wives, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, go ahead, you can do that. The links are at the bottom of the description on, on this show for you to link up over there at the meetup. We also do... Uh, three, four times a week, we also do meditation. And if you're interested in calming yourself down and learning how to deal with your health via meditation, this is for you. Uh, we do it, like I said, three or four times a week. There's two times, 3.30 p.m. Pacific and 7.45 p.m. Pacific. All right. That being said, let's get into reading uh, Rudyard Kipling. And let me get my little note thing up here because I forgot to run that. I have a thank you to make as well. Uh, George the Rose, who is, I hope I said the Rose, maybe the Rose who lives in France, uh, sent me a real nice donation the other day. Thank you, George. He's one of my loyal listeners, so I wanted to make it a point to thank him. So here we go with the Phantom Rickshaw and other ghost stories, and then we'll see where that leads us today. Conceive yourself at the door of the world's treasure house, guarded by a child, an idle, irresponsible child playing knuckle bones, on whose favor depends the gift of the key. And you will imagine one half of my torment. Till that evening, Charlie had spoken nothing that might not lie within the experiences of a Greek galley slave. But now, 
or there was no virtue in books. He had talked to some de- he had talked of some desperate adventure of the Vikings. Let me roll this up. Of Thorfinn at Kalsfinnes. Here we go. K R L S E F N E S. Sailing to Wineland, which is America, in the 9th or 10th century. The battle in the harbor he had seen, and his own death he had described, but this was a much more startling plunge into the past. Was it possible that he had skipped half a dozen lives and was then dimly remembering some episode of a thousand years later? It was a maddening jumble. And the worst of it was that Charlie Mears, in his normal condition, was the last person in the world to clear it up. I could only wait and watch, but I went to bed that night full of the wildest imaginarings. There was nothing that was not possible if Charlie's detestable memory only held good. So what we discovered in our last reading with this was that Charlie was talking about his past life on the you know, on this Greek slave ship. I might rewrite the saga of Thor's of Thorfinn. I'm just going to say Thorfinn because I can't say the last name, so I'm just going to do that. I might rewrite the saga of Thorfinn as it had never been written before. Might tell the story of the first discovery of America myself, the discoverer. But I was entirely at Charlie's mercy, and so long as there was a three and sixpenny bond volume within his reach, Charlie would not tell. I dared not curse him openly. I hardly dared jog his memory, for I was dealing with the experiences of a thousand years ago, told through the mouth of a boy today 1800s and a boy of today is affected by every change of tone and gust of opinion so that the lies even when he desires so that he lies even when he desires to speak the truth let me enlarge this just a little more okay just a little okay there we go i saw no more of him for nearly a week when i next met him it was in grace church street with a bill book chained to his waist business took him on took him over London Bridge and I accompanied him. Oh, I'm sorry. Ha! See that? Business took him over London Bridge and I accompanied him. He was very full of the importance of that book and magnified it. As we passed over the Thames, we paused to look at the steamer, unloading great slabs of white and brown marble. A barge drifted under the steamer's stern, and a lowly cow on the barge bellowed. Charlie's face changed from the face of a bank clerk to that of an unknown, and, though he would not have believed this, a much shrewder man he flung on his arm across the, the parapet of the bridge and laughing very loudly said when they heard our bulls below the the scrollings ran away i want i waited only for an instant but the barge of the cow had disappeared under, under the bows of the steamer before i answered charlie what do you suppose are, are scrollings never heard of them before they sound like a new kind of seagull what a chap you are for asking questions he replied I have to go to the cashier of the omnibus company yonder. Will you wait for me and we can lunch somewhere together? I have a notion for a poem. No thanks, I'm off. You're sure you know nothing about scrollings? Not unless he's been entered for the Liverpool handicap. He nodded and disappeared into the crowd. Now it's written in the saga of Eric the Red, or that of Thorfinn, that 900 years ago, when, Thorf- when Thorfinn's galleys came to Leif's booths, which Leif had erected in the unknown land called Markland, which may or may not have been Rhode Island. The scrollings and the lord he knows who may or may not have been came to trade with the Vikings and ran away because they were frightened of the bellowing of, of, of the cattle, which Thorfinn had, bought, had brought with him in the ships. 
Let me bring this up a little bit. But when in the when in the world could a Greek slave know of that mystery? And the more I considered it, the more baffling it grew. One thing only seemed certain, and that certainly took away my breath for the moment. If I came to full knowledge of anything at all, it would not be in one life of the soul, in Charlie Muir's body, but half a dozen, half a dozen several or separate existences spent on blue water in the morning off the world of the world. Then I walked around the situation. Obviously, if I use my knowledge, I can stand alone and unapproachable and tell all the men as wise and tell all men were wise as myself. That would be something, but man like I was ungrateful. It seemed bitterly unfair that Charlie's memory should fail me when I needed it the most. Great powers above. I looked at them going through the fog smoke. Did the Lords of Life and Death know what this meant to me? Nothing less than eternal fame of the best kind. That comes from one, and is shared by one alone. I should be consent, remembering Clive. I stood astounded at my own moderation, with the mere right to tell one story, to work out one little contribution to the light literature of the day. If Charlie were permitted full, permitted full recollection for one hour, the 60 short minutes of existence, then that extended over a thousand years. I would forego all profit and honor from all that. I should make of his for all that I should make of his speech. I would take no share in the commotion that would follow throughout one particular corner of the earth that calls itself the world. The thing should be put forth anonymously. Nay, I would make other men believe that they had written it. They would hire a bullheaded self-advertising Englishman to bellow it abroad. Preachers would found a fresh conduct of life upon it and swearing that it was new, and that they had lifted the fear of death from all mankind. Every Asian in Europe would patronize it discursively with Sanskrit and, and, and Palitext. Terrible women would invent unclean variants of the men's belief for the elevation of their sisters. Churches, churches and religious, religions would war over it. Between the hailing, restarting of the omnibus, I foresaw the scuffles that would arise among half a dozen dead the denominations all professing the doctrine of the true <laughs> mentum psychosis as applied to the world and the new era and saw too the respectable English newspaper shine like frightened kind over the beautiful simplicity of the tale the mind leaped forward a hundred, two hundred, a thousand years I saw with sorrow the, that the men would mutilate and garble the story that rival creeds were turning upside down till, at last, the Western world, which clings to the dead of dirt, the dread of dearth more closely than the hope of life, would set it aside as an interesting superstition and stampede after some faith so long forgotten that it seemed altogether new. Upon this, I changed the terms of the bargain that I would make with the lords of life and death. Only let me know, let me write the story with sure knowledge that I wrote the truth and I would burn the manuscript as a solemn sacrifice. Five minutes after the last burn, I'm sorry, five minutes after the last line was written, I would destroy it all. But I must be allowed to write it with absolute certainty. There was no answer. The flaming colors of an aquarium poster caught my eye, and I wondered whether it would be wise or prudent to lure Charlie into the hands of the professional mesmerist, and whether. If we were under his power, 
he would speak of his past lives. If he did, and if people believed him. But Charlie would be frightened and flustered, or made conceited by the interviews. In either case, he would begin to lie through fear and va or vanity. He was the safest in my own hands. There are very funny fools, you English, said a voice at my elbow. And turning round, I recognized a casual acquaintance, a young Bengali law student called Grish Chander, whose father had sent him to England to become civilized. The old man was a retired native official, and on an income of five pounds a month, contrived to allow his son 200 pounds a year, and the run of his teeth in a city where he could pretend to be the cadet of the royal house, and tell stories of the brutal Indian bureaucrats who ground the faces of, of the poor. Grish Chunder was a young, fat, full-bodied Bengali dressed with scrupulous care in a frock coat, tall hat, light trousers, and tan gloves. But I had known him in days when the brutal Indian government paid for his university education, and he contributed cheap sedition to Sashi Durman and intrigued with the wives of his schoolmates. That is very funny and very foolish, he said, nodding at the poster. I'm going down to the Northbrook Club. Will you come too? I walked with him for some time. You're not well, he said. What is there in your mind? You don't talk. Grish Chunder, you've been too well educated to believe in a god, haven't you? Oh, yes, here. But when I go home, I must consolate popular superstition and make ceremonies of purification, and my women, and my women will anoint idols. And bang up, Tulsi, and feast the perchet, and take you back in the cast again, and make good kosher. That's K-H-U-T-T-R-J. Of you again, you advanced social free thinker. And you'll eat desi food and like it all. From the swell in the courtyard to the mustard oil all over you. I shall very much like it, said Grish Chunder, unguardedly. Once a Hindu, always a Hindu. But I'd but I like to know what the English think they know. I'll tell you something that one Englishman knows. It's an old tale to you. I began to tell the story of Charlie in English. But Grish Gunder put down a question in the vernacular, and the history went forward naturally, in the tongue best suited for its telling. After all, it could never have been told in English. Grish Chunder heard me, nodding from time to time, and then came up to my rooms, where I finished the tale. Bishak, he said, philosophically. Lincoln dwarves a band high. Without doubt, the door is shut. I have heard of this remembering of previous existences among my people. It is, of course, an old tale with us, but to happen to be an Englishman, a cow-fed mullished an outcast, by Jove, that is the most peculiar. Outcast yourself, Grish Chunder. You eat cow beef every day. Let's think the thing over. The boy remembers his incarnations. Does, does he know that, said Grish Chunder, quietly, swinging his legs as he sat on the table. He was speaking in English now. He does not know anything. Would I speak to you if he did? Go on. There, there is no going on at all. If I tell you that your friends will say you are mad and put it in the papers, suppose now you prosecute for libel. Let's leave that out of the question entirely. Is there any chance of his being able to speak? There is a chance. Oh, yes. But if he spoke, it would mean that all this world would end. And now, stentato, fall on your head. These things are not allowed, you know. As I said, the door is shut. Not a ghost of a chance? How can there be? You're a Christian. 
It is forbidden to eat in your books of the tree of life, or else you would never die. How shall you all fear if you all know what your friend does not know that he knows? I am afraid to be kicked, but I am not afraid to die, because I know what I know. You are not afraid to be kicked, but you are afraid to die. If you were not, by God, you English would be all over the shop in an hour, upsetting the balances of power and making emotions. It would not be good, but no fear. He will remember a little and a little less, and he will call it dreams. Then he will forget altogether. When I passed the first arch examination in Calcutta, that was all in the cram book on, Word, on Wordsworth. Trailing clouds of glory, you know. This seems to be an exception to the rule. There are no exceptions to rules. Some are not so hard-looking as others, but they are all the same when you touch. If this friend of yours said so-and-so and so-and-so, indicating that he remembered his lost lives and one piece of a lot or one piece of a lost life, he would not be in the bank another hour. He would be what you called a sack, because he was mad, and they would send him into an asylum for lunatics. You can see that, my friend. Of course I can, but I wasn't thinking of him. His name never appeared in the story. Ah, I see. That story will never be written. You can try. I am going to. For your own credit, and for the sake of money, of course? No. For the sake of writing the story. Oh, my honor, that will be all. Even then, there is, a, there is no chance. You cannot play with the gods. It is a very pretty story now. And as they say, let it go on that. I mean, at that. Be quick. He will not last long. How do you mean? What I say, he has never so far thought about a woman. Hasn't he? Though, I remember one of Charlie's confidences. I mean, no woman has thought about him when that comes. Bus hog it all up. I know. There are millions of women here. Housemaids, for instance. I wished at the thought of my story being ruined by a housemaid, and yet nothing was more probable. Grish Chunder grinned. Yes, also pretty girls, cousins of his house, and perhaps not of his house. One kiss that he gives back again and remembers will cure all this nonsense. Or else, or else what? Remember, he does not know that he knows. I know that. Or else, if nothing happens, he will become immersed in the trade of the financial speculations like the rest. It must be so. You can see that. It must be so. But the women will come first, I think. There was a rap at the door, and Charlie charged in immediately. He had been released from the office, and by the look in his eyes, I could see that he had come over for a long talk, most probably with poems in his pockets. Charlie's poems were very wearying, but sometimes they led him to talk about the galley. Grish Chunder looked at him keenly for a minute. I beg your pardon, Charlie said uneasily. I didn't know you had anyone with you. I am going, said Gunder, to Chunder. He drew me into the lobby as he departed. This is your man, he said quickly. I tell you, he will never speak all you wish. That is Rotbosch. But he would be most good to, to he would be most good to make to see things. Suppose now we pretend that it was only a play. I had never seen Grish Chunder so excited, and pour the ink pool into his hand. Eh, hey, what do you think? I tell you that he could see anything, that a man could see. Let me get the ink and the camphor. He is a seer, and he will tell us very many things. He may be all you say, but I'm not going to trust him to your gods and devils. It will not hurt him. He will only feel a little stupid and dull when he wakes up. 
You ever seen boys look into ink pools before? That is the reason why I'm not going to see it anymore. You better go, Grish Shudder. He went, declaring far down the staircase that it was throwing away my only chance of looking into the future. This left me unmoved, for I was concerned for the past, and no peering of hypnotized boys into mirrors and ink pools would help me do that. But I recognized Grish Chunder's point of view and sympathized with it. What a big black brute that was, said Charlie, when I returned to him. Well, look here. I've just done a poem. Did instead of playing dominoes after lunch. May I read it? Let me read it to myself. Then you miss the proper expression. Besides, you always make my thing sound as if the rhymes are all wrong. Read it aloud, then. You'll like the rest of them. You're just like the rest of them. Charlie Mouth. Sorry, Charlie mailed me his poem, and it was not the it was not much worse than the average of his verses. He had been reading his book faithfully, but he was not pleased when I told him that I preferred my Longfellow undiluted with Charlie. Then we begin to go through MS, line by line, Charlie Charlie pairing every objection and correction with. Yes, that may be better, but you don't catch what I'm driving at. Charlie was, in one way at least, very like one kind of poet. There was a pencil scrawl at the back of the paper. And what's that? I said. Oh, that's not poetry at all. It's some rot I wrote last night before I went to bed. And it was too much bother to hunt for rhymes, so I made it a sort of blank verse instead. Here is Charlie's blank verse. We pulled for you when the wind was against us and the sails were low. Will you ever let us go? We ate bread and onions when you took when you took towns and ran abroad quickly when you were beaten back by the foe. The captains walked up and down the deck in fair weather singing songs, but we were below. We faded with our chins on the oars, and you did not see that we were idle, for we still swung to and fro. Will you never let us go? The salt made the oar handles like shark skin. Our knees were cut to the bone with salt cracks. Our hair was stuck to our foreheads, and our lips were cut to your were cut to our gums, and you whipped us because we would not row. Will you ever let us go? But in a little time we shall run out of the run out of the portholes as the water runs along the oar blade. And though you tell the others to row after us, you will never catch us till you catch the oar thrash and tie up the winds in the belly of the sail. Aho. Will you never let us go? Hmm. What's the oar thrash, Charlie? The water washed up by the oars. That's the sort of song that might, they might sing in the galley, you know? Aren't you ever going to finish that story and give me the profits? Give me some of the profits? It depends on yourself. If you had only told me about your hero in the first instance, it might have been finished by now. But you're hazy in your notions. I only want to give you the general notion of it. The knocking about from place to place and the fighting and all that. Can't you fill in the rest yourself? Make the hero save a girl on a pirate galley and marry her or do something? You're a really helpful collaborator. I suppose the hero went through some few adventures before, before he married. Well then, make him an artful card. A low sort of man, a sort of political man who went about making treaties and breaking them. A black-haired chap who had hid behind most, of the, most when the fighting began. But you said the other day that he was red-haired. I couldn't have. Make him black-haired, of course. You've no imagination. Seeing that I had just discovered the entire principles upon which the half-memory falsely called imagination is based, I felt entitled to laugh. 
but for lore, for the sake of the tale. You're right. You're the man with imagination. A black-haired chap in a deck ship, I said. No, an open ship, like a big boat. This was maddening. No, 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 not that ship. That was open or half-decked. Did I skip something here? This was maddening. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. This was maddening. Your ship has been built and designed, closed and decked in. You said so yourself, I protested. No, 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 not that ship. That was open or half-decked because, by Jove, you're right. You made me think of the hero as a red-headed chap. Of course, if he were red, the ship would be an open one to paint his sails. Surely, I thought, he would remember now that he had served in two galleys at least, in a three-deck Greek under one, which is the black-haired politician man, and again the Vikings open sea serpent under the man red as the red beard, who went to Markland. The devil prompted me to speak. Why, of course, Charlie, said I. I don't know. Are you making fun of me? The current was broken for the time being. I took a notebook and pretended to make my entries in it. It's a pleasure to work with an imaginative chap like yourself, I said, after a pause. The, the way that you brought out the character of the hero is simply wonderful. You think so, he answered, with a pleased flush. I often tell myself that there's more in me than my mo than people think. There's an enormous amount in you. Then, won't you let me send an essay to the ways of bank clerks to tip pits just to get the guinea prize? That wasn't exactly what I meant, old fellow. Perhaps we better wait a little and go ahead with the galley story. Ah, but I shan't get the credit of that. Tip bits would publish my name and address if I win. What are you grinning at? They would. I know it. Suppose you go for a walk. I want to look through my notes about your story. Now, this reprehensible youth who left me, a little hurt and put back, might, be a, might for aught he or I knew, have been one of the crew of the Argo, have been certainly slave or comrade to Thorfinn. Therefore, he was deeply interested in getting competitions. Remembering what Grish Chudder had said, I laughed aloud. The lords of life and death, the lords of life and death would never allow Charlie Mears to speak with full knowledge of his past. And I must even piece out what he had told me with my own poor intentions while Charlie Mears wrote of the ways of the bank clerks. <clears throat> okay. I got together and placed one file all my notes, and the net result was not cheery. I read them a second time. There was nothing that might have been compiled at second hand for other people's books, except, perhaps, the story of the fight in the harbor. The adventures of a Viking had been written many times before. The history of a Greek galley slave was no new thing. And though I wrote both, who could challenge or confirm the accuracy of my details? I might as well tell a tale of 2,000 years hence. The lords of life and death were as cunning as Grish Chunder had hinted. They would allow nothing to escape that might trouble or make easy the minds of men. Though I was convinced of this, yet I could not leave the tale alone. Let me go up a little bit. Exhalation followed reaction, not once, but 20 times in the next few weeks. My moods varied with the March sunlight and flying clouds. By night, or in the beauty of a spring morning, I had perceived that I could write that I could write the tale and shift continents thereby. In the wet, windy afternoon, 
I saw that the tale might indeed be written, but would be nothing more than a faked, false varnished, shamrush piece of Mortar Street work at the end. Then I blessed Charlie in many ways, but it was no fault of his. He seemed to be busy with prize competitions, and I saw less and less of him as the weeks went by, and the earth cracked and grew ripe to spring, and the buds swelled in the sheaths. He did not care to read or talk of what he had to read, of what he had to read. And there was no new ring of self-assertion in his voice. I hardly cared to remind him of the galley when we met. But Charlie alluded to it on, one, on every occasion, always as a story from which money was to be made. <clears throat> I think I deserve 25%, don't I? At least, he said, with beautiful frankness. I supplied all the lions, didn't I? This greediness for silver was a new side to his personality. I assumed that it had been developed in the city, where Charlie was picking up the notorious or the curious nasal draw, where Charlie was picking up the curious nasal draw of the Underbridge city man. When the thing's done, we'll talk about it. I can't make anything of it at present. Red-haired or black-haired hero are equally difficult. He was sitting by the fire, staring at the red coals. I can't understand what you find so difficult. It's all as clean as mud to me, he replied. A jet of gas puffed out between the bars, took light, and whistled softly. Suppose we take the red-haired hero's adventures first. From the time he came south to my galley and captured it and sailed to the beaches. I knew better now than to interrupt Charlie. I was out of reach of pen and paper, and dared not move to get them lest I should break the current. The gas yet puffed and whinnied. Charlie's voice dropped almost to a whisper, and he told the tale of the sailing of an open galley to the, here we go, Ferdistrandi. I tried. Of sunsets on the open sea, seen under the curve of the one sail evening after evening, when the galley's beak was notched into the center of a sinking disk, and we sailed by that, for we had no other guide, quoth Charlie. He spoke of landing on an island and ex explorations in its woods, where the crew killed men, three men, whom they found asleep under the pines. Their ghost, Charlie said, followed the galley, swimming and choking in the water, and the crew cast lots and threw one of their number overboard as a sacrifice to the strange gods whom they had offended. Then they ate seaweed when their provisions failed, and their legs swelled, and their leader, the red-haired man, killed two rowers who mutinied. And after a year spent among the woods, they set sail for their own country. And the wind that never failed carried them back to safety that they all slept that night, and they all slept at night. This, and much more Charlie told. Sometimes the voice fell so low that I could not catch the words, though every nerve was on the strain. He spoke of their leader, the red-haired man, and as the pagan speaks of his god, for it was he who cheered them on, who cheered them and slew them impartially, as he thought best for their needs. And it was he who steered them for three days among floating ice, each flow crowded with strange beasts that tried to sail with us, that tried to sail with us said Charlie, and we beat them back with the handles of the oars. The gas jet went out, and burned coal gave way. And the fire settled down with a tiny crash to the bottom of the grate. Charlie ceased speaking, and I said no word. By Jove, he said at last, shaking his head. I've been staring at the fire till I'm dizzy. What was I going to say? Something about the galley. I remember now. 
It's a twenty. It's it's twenty five percent of the profits, isn't it? It's anything you like when I've done when I've done the tale. I wanted to be sure of that. I have an appointment, and he left. Had my eyes not been held, I might have known that broken muttering over the fire was the swan song of Charlie Mears. But I thought it was a prelude to the fuller revelation. At last, and at last, I should cheat the lords of life and death. When next Charlie came to me, I received him with rapture. He was nervous and embarrassed, but his eyes were very full of light and his lips a little parted. I've done a poem, he said, and then quickly, it's the best I've ever done. Read it, he thrust it into my hand and retreated to the window. I groaned inwardly. It would be the work of half an hour to criticize. That is to say, praise the poem sufficiently to please Charlie. Then I had good reason to groan, for Charlie, discarding his favorite centipede meters, had launched into a shorter and choppier verse and verse with a motive at the back of it. This is what I read. The day is most fair, the cheery, the cheery wind. Halos behind a hill, where he bends the wood as seemeth good, and the sapling to his will. Riot of wind, there is what I, the, the, there is that in my blood that I would not have thee still. She gave me herself, O earth, O sky, Gracie, she is mine alone. Let the sullen boulders hear me cry and rejoice, though they be but stone. Mine, I have won her. O good brown earth, make merry. Tis hard on spring, make merry, my love, is doubly worth. All worship your fields can bring. Let the bind that seals you feel my mirth at the earthly Halloween. Harrowing. Yes, this is the... Yes, it's the earthly heroine past doubt, I said, with a thread at my heart. Charlie smiled. With a, I'm sorry, with a dread of my heart. Charlie smiled, but did not answer. Red cloud of the sunset, tell it abroad. I am Victor. Greet me, O son. Dominant master and absolute lord over the soul of one. Well, said Charlie, looking over my shoulder. I thought it far from well, and very evil indeed, when he silently laid a photograph on the paper. The photograph of a girl with a curly head and a foolish slack mouth. Isn't it? Isn't it wonderful? He whispered, pink to the tips of his ears, wrapped in the rosy mystery of first love. I didn't know. I didn't think. It came like a thunderclap. Yes, it comes like a thunderclap. Are you very happy, Charlie? My God, she loves me. He sat down, repeating the last words to himself. I looked at the hairless face, the narrow shoulders already bowed by desk work and wondered when, where, and how he had loved in his past lives. What will your mother say? I asked cheerfully. I don't care a damn what she says. At twenty, the things for which one does not care a damn should properly be many, but one must not include mothers in the list. I told him this gently, and he, and he described her, even as Adam must have described to the world the newly named beast's the glory and tenderness and beauty of Eve. Incidentally, I learned that she was a tobacconist assistant with a weakness for pretty, for pretty dresses and had told him four or five times already that she had never been kissed by a man before. Charlie spoke on and on and on, while I, separated from him by thousands of years, was considering the beginnings of things. Now I understood why the lords of life and death shut the door so carefully behind us. 
it is that we may not remember our first wooings. Were it not so, our world would be without inhabitants in a hundred years. Now, about the galley story, I said, still more cheerfully, and a pause in the rush of the speech. Charlie looked up as though he had been hit. The galley? What galley? Good heavens, don't joke, man. This is serious. You don't know how serious it is. Grish Chunder was right. Charlie had tasted the love of a woman that kills remembrance, and the finest story in the world will never be written. So there you have it for that, that book. We are done with it, and I found it and a uh, pretty good book. Not too bad, not too bad, not too bad. Um, you know, it's interesting because he tells ghost stories in an interesting, like, roundabout way. That's why, I would, you know, I didn't realize we were talking about past lives until essentially it was halfway through this book. So it was kind of interesting. Okay, so we're going to start the new book right now, and uh, the new book is, and I'm going to pop on over here, Let me go up here and I'll tell you, it's called, I believe it's called True Ghost Stories. Yes, True Ghost Stories by Harold Carlington, author of The Physical Phenomena of Spiritualism, The Coming Science, Death, Its Causes and Phenomena, and Death Deferred, etc. So he's got a few other books out on, on, on the topic. So we're going to go ahead and go in here and let me get going here. We got some contents. What is a ghost is where we're going to start. And I'm really looking forward to this because... Let's see, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, interesting to see what their views were in the, in the late 1800s as opposed to what our views as ghost hunters today are. So let's, let's, let's read the publisher's note to start and get rolling with this. Herbert Carrington, author of True Ghost Stories, is well known in this country and in Europe as a prominent scientific writer on um, cyclical and occult subjects. He has been a member of both the English and American Societies of Cyclical Research for more than 15 years. He has written a dozen books on the subject, a number of which have been translated into foreign languages, such as Japanese and Arabic. And he has lectured in London, Paris, Rome, Venice, Milan, Genoa, Turin, etc., before scientific organizations. His writings are well known and have earned him a high place in cyclical circles. He's a late member of the Council of the American Scientific Society, of the American Geographical Society, and of the American Health League. He collaborated in the American Encyclopedia, the Standard Dictionary, and others. His experience in the investigation of cyclical mysteries is unrivaled. He has traveled all over the country investigating cases, spending nights in haunted houses, and accounts of his investigations have appeared in the reports of the various cyclical societies, and also in his own publications. In True Ghost Stories, Mr. Carrington presents a number of startling cases of of his character, but they are not the ordinary ghost stories based on pure fiction and having no foundation in reality. Here we have a well-arranged collection of incidents, all thoroughly investigated and vouched for, and the testimony obtained firsthand and investigated and vouched for. I'm sorry, I, my bad, like I told you, it all runs together. And the testimony is firsthand and corroborated by others. The chapter on haunted houses is particularly striking. The first chapter deals with an interesting question. What is a ghost? It attempts to answer this question in the light of the latest scientific theories, which have been advanced to explain these supernatural happenings of incidents. It is a book of absorbing interest and cannot feel, fail to grip and hold the attention of every reader, no matter whether he be a student of these questions or one nearly in search of hair-raising anecdotes or stories. 
he will find them here plenty. Okay, now let's remember that this book was written in the late 1800s to the early 1900s. So it should be, like I said, it should be interesting to see what's in here as far as ghost hunting and all that. Here's the preface. The following book endeavors to bring together a number of ghost stories of the, of the more startling and dramatic type, but stories nevertheless, which seem to be well authenticated and which have been obtained in most instances at first hand from the original witnesses and often contain corroborative testimony from others who also experienced the ghostly phenomena. Some of these incidents, indeed, rise to the dignity of scientific evidence. Others are less well-authenticated cases. But interesting for all that. These have been grouped in various chapters according to their evidential value. Chapters 2 and 3 contain well-evidenced cases, some of which have been taken from the proceedings and journals of the Society for Cyclical Research, or from Phantasms of the Living, or from other scientific books in which narrative of this character received serious consideration. Chapter 5, on the contrary, contains a number of incidents which, striking and dramatic as they are, cannot be included in the two earlier chapters, as presenting real evidence of ghosts, but are published rather as startling and interesting ghost stories. Chapter 4, devoted to haunted houses, contains brief accounts of the most famous haunted houses and of the phenomena which have been witnessed within them. Appendix A gives a list of the few of the important historical ghosts. Appendix B describes the phantom armies lately seen by the Allied troops in France, while Appendix C lists a number of books of ghost stories in which the interested reader may care to peruse. A short glossary at the beginning of the book explains the meaning of certain terms used, which are not, perhaps, ordinarily met within books of this character. In the introductory chapter, I have endeavored to explain very briefly the nature and character of ghosts, what they are, and the various scientific theories which have been brought forward of late years to explain ghosts. I hope that this may prove of interest to the reader. In case it does not do so, he is invited to skip directly to chapter 2, which, benefit, which begins with our account of true ghost stories. I wish to express my thanks in this place to the Council of English, SPR, for special permission to quote and to summarize several striking cases here reproduced. Also to Mrs. Stelsteed for permission to utilize several cases previously printed in length in Mr. W. T. Mr. William T. Steed's Collections of Ghost Stories, H.C. Let's take a look at these glossaries. Let me have some water real quick. Awesome. I needed that. Let me double check my time here, guys, and then we'll uh, continue with this. Let me see where I'm at here. So I'm at. Okay, let me come up close. Okay. So it looks like, let me like enlarge this a little bit so I can see real quick. Just give me a minute. Just want to make sure I'm on I'm on track. Okay. All right. So I've got. I'm just okay. All right. Got it. Just want to make sure I know how much time I have. All right. So here we go. Agent, the person who, in thought transference experiments, endeavors to impress his thoughts upon the recipient and receiver. Death coincidence. 
a case in which an apparition or other ghostly phenomenon has taken place at the moment of death of the person represented by the by the phantom ghost okay so we said about ghosts an apparition a phantom some contend that all ghosts are subjective or purely mental hallucinations others that some that some ghosts are objective that is space occupying entities which exist apart from the seer who sees them these points will be found fully discussed in this book okay hallucination a mental experience in which a phantom is seen a voice heard etc when there is no real external cause for this seeing or hearing hallucinations are more complete than mere illusions pact i don't know about this one in agreement okay entered into before death between two persons that whichever one dies first shall appear to the other one these are here called pack cases a pack may also mean an agreement between a necromancer and some spirit intelligence as in magic but the word is not used in that sense of this book recipient the receiver of the telepathic or other message the one who experiences the phenomenon phantasm a phantom an apparition a ghost the word is more inclusive than any of the words suggested and is used by preference by most psychic students telepathy mind reading thought transference and here we go true ghost stories chapter one what is a ghost ghosts have been believed in every nation at every time and at every stage of the world's evolution no matter where we may go we find them stalking through the pages of history and even in our own cynical and materialistic age we not only find ghosts still but the evidence for their existence is stronger than ever it is nonsense to say that no sensible person believes in ghosts because many thousands of them do why do they believe why why, why would they believe if they had no cause to do so the terror of the dark which we all have more or less from which every child suffers how intensely during its early years a terror which is to a certain extent shared by animals and even insects does all this signify nothing those who have looked into this question thoroughly believe that there is in every truth a terrible reality just to find this instinctive fear that evil and horrible things lurk about in the still weird hours of the night that there are truly powers and principalities with which we often toy without knowing or realizing the frightful the frightful dangers which result from this tampering with the unseen world yes there is a true tyranny of the dark phenomenal and ghostly manifestations take place in darkness which would never occur in light and which cease when a light is struck and ghostly phenomena are associated with darkness and the wee small hours of the night all this is, is exemplified in the following interesting narrative which i may entitle the terror of the dark <clears throat> quote all my life i have been afraid of the dark said an acquaintance to see to me the other day when we were discussing cyclical matters okay i know that it is childish he continued and i ought to have outgrown it years ago but as a matter of fact i haven't after all isn't there some reason for the fears that we all feel more or less at the time doesn't the bible speak of the terrors of the dark or are not all animals and even insects afraid of the dark so much so that you cannot induce them to enter a dark place if they can help it 
light not only enables you to see what is around you, but it acts in a certain positive manner over the powers of darkness, whatever they are, and prevents their operation. All spirit mediums will tell you that materialization and manifestations of that character cannot take place in the light. It prevents their occurrence. So, after all, as I said, isn't there some reasonable ground for one's fear at such times? I said nothing, but gazed into the fire. After all, were not his arguments somewhat impressive? But, continued my friend, it is not altogether because of these speculative reasons that I fear the dark. It is because of a terrible experience I once had, and which has left me terror-struck. Ever since, whenever I left without light, even for an instant, I will tell you the story, unless you judge for yourself. It was several years ago, in an old house we rented at that time, and from which we removed soon after the event I'm about to relate. I was afraid of the dark even then, and always left a nightlight burning by the side of the bed when I went to sleep. One night I woke up, feeling the springs of the bed on which I was lying vibrate in a peculiar manner, impossible to describe. Looking up, I saw, standing by the side of my bed, a young man dressed in rags, having a face ghastly white, and showing every indication of dissipation. He was regarding me intently. I shall never forget the shock I received on beholding that figure, not only because of the unexpected appearance, but because of the fact that I could perceive the opposite wall and furniture through the body. I knew at once that I beheld a spirit, and my blood ran cold at the thought, which I had dreaded all my life was at the last fulfilled. My next thought was, I am so glad the nightlight is burning. What should I do if I were in darkness? As though the form read my thoughts, and was instant on torturing me to the limit of endurance, it leaned over, and the next instant had snuffed the candle. The phantom and I were alone in the black darkness. Words could not describe my feelings at that instant. The blood froze in my veins, and the tongue claved to the roof of my mouth. I tried to speak, but could not. I only held out one hand, as if to ward off the awful presence by pressing it away. The next instant, I felt the bedclothes gently turned down on the, on the further side of the bed and partly pulled off me. The springs of the bed were, dis were depressed, and I knew that the fearsome visitor was crawling into bed. It would, lie by, it would lie down by my side, perhaps touch me, perhaps, who could tell? The agony of mine I experienced in those few moments I shall never forget. My only wonder is that my reason did not give way. Then a curious thing happened. Even in, the, even in that state of mind, as I was then, I could perceive that the bed was gradually rising up again into its normal position. The weight upon it was growing less and less finely. It was again level, and I felt the bedclothes carefully replaced over me. The phantom had withdrawn. For hours I lay awake, not daring to move. After what seemed like a century, the first faint shafts of light fell across my room, betalking the welcome morn. Finally, glorious day broke, glorious light, hateful darkness. Cannot you see why I hate it so? But, fortunately, this evil and horrible side of, of, of Ghostland is not universal. Ghosts do not always present themselves as so formidable and gruesome. Some of them prove helpful. Others seem to wish to right a wrong. 
Some even seem to have a sense of humor. So there are still all sorts of ghosts, just as there are all sorts of people. And the variety is just as great in the one case as in the other. Just checking, give me a quick time check here. See where I'm at. Okay. We got a few more minutes, so I'm gonna go ahead and start and then I will be wrapping this up for the day. So we got about three minutes to go. You know what, I'm gonna stop right there and we'll continue on Sunday with this. Um, yeah, I think I think it would be pretty wise to do so. I want to thank you guys for sticking with me. I hope you enjoyed the uh, Kip, the, the, the Kipling book as much as I did because I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Rudyard Kipling. If you remember, Rudyard Kipling is the man that brought us the Jungle Book. So without him, there'd be no Jungle Book. But I hope you enjoyed today, and I did too. I, I, I love sitting back and reading. It helps me relax. So uh, I hope it helped you as well. Anyway, thank you all for coming. If you if you like the show, share it with uh, five people. If you hated the show, share it with... Uh, Fire your enemies. Also, if you're watching from Facebook and you like what you heard today, please feel free to uh, follow if you haven't done so already and uh, show me some thumbs up and some hearts. And I still never got through this, right, to do this thing. And just show me some love and yeah, even, even throw a comment out there, even though I'm not here, but throw a comment out there because that puts this thing up in the FYP, which puts us out to more people. Same thing with YouTube. If you haven't um, subscribed, please feel free to do that. I'd really appreciate it on YouTube. If you want to find California Haunts or California Haunts Radio, all you have to do is just type in on Dr. Google and it'll bring us up everywhere. And you can just click on something, find our Facebook page, find our websites and all that good stuff. Okay, uh, quick reminder about Sunday at 4 p.m. Pacific, Nancy Matz will be doing readings. The links are down in the description of the show. Thank you so much for coming and I will see you tomorrow. We're going to be live with Mary Joyce. We're going to be talking about aliens and we're going to be talking about alien conspiracies and earth conspiracies. So join me tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. I'll see you there. Have a great one.